Good morning. Good to have you here today as we are kicking off a new series that uh, I'm calling Ignite. And this is moving by itself, so it's going to change again in just a minute, but there you go. Uh, What we're doing is we're going to look at the seven churches of Asia in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. And it's my intention that we'll look to about nine lessons and talking about how we can rekindle our fire for God, how we can become more zealous for Him and and try to maintain and certainly increase uh, our fervor and our our love for God. Uh, One of the things that I think is, is a challenge that we sometimes, I think, come across in our Christian walk is why is it so difficult sometimes to do the things that God has asked us to do? Why is it such a challenge? I know what God would have me to do. I know what God commands. I know what He says. So why is it so hard for me to do it? So why do I constantly come up against obstacles and challenges and things that interfere so that I'm pulled away from doing the things that I really know I should and things that I want to be doing? And that's really what we're going to be spending our time talking about is what can we do, what does it take for us to have that fervor and zeal for God? How can we overcome these obstacles that often present themselves that cause us to stray away from what we know what we ought to do? And the good news is is that we're not the only ones. When we read the seven churches in Asia, we're going to notice that they have the same obstacles that we have today. Uh, We're going to read about some who are doing really well and these Christians who are serving the Lord excellently. We're going to read about Christians who seem to not care about God in the slightest. And we're going to read about Christians who seem to be a mix of both, who seem to be doing well, but on the other hand, God lays some charges at their feet on things that they need to improve. And so we're going to spend our time then looking at many of these examples given to us in Revelation to learn about what we can do to be what Christ would have us to be. Can you imagine if Christ were to write you a letter? If He decided, I am going to write a letter to you personally, what do you think He would say in that letter to you? Can you imagine if he would write a letter to this local church? And he said, I have observed the things that are going on at Haverhill, and here's some things I want to tell you about. What do you think he would write? What do you think he would say? What would be the positives that he would say that I observed these things, and yet what would be some of the charges that he would say, but I have this against you? That is the form that he carries out in these seven churches. As was read for us this morning, we are in Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to look at the first seven verses there in Revelation chapter 2. And what we're going to notice here is he's going to observe for these Christians in Ephesus that there is a, a mixture. There, is some pro, there are some problems that are there in the church, but there are some things that they're doing well. And the things that he tells them to do are some things that we will be able to take away as to how we can ignite our lives and rekindle our love for Christ as well. Just as a, a quick moment for some of you who are uh, perhaps newer to the Scriptures, I go ahead and put a map up there 
for you just to get an idea of where we are talking about in the world. That, that is what is today modern day Turkey. And you'll notice on the western edge there are the seven churches of Asia there in somewhat of a semicircle. And he's going, Christ is going to address each of these churches. And so when we talk about the seven churches of Asia, do not think about what we speak of when we talk about Asia. We're not talking about the Far East. We're talking about this Roman province that was in the western half of what we would call today the modern area of the country, Turkey. And so that's what he is writing to the Christians that are there in the first century. Here's their plight. Here is what is going on. And so verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks along among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for My name's sake and you have not grown weary. Jump down to verse 6 where he says, Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. So he gives this long listing to them of look at all the things that you've done. And what we are going to observe is that they have the right doctrine. They have the right teachings. It says, I'm I'm very happy with what you are doing. You are not engaged in worldliness in the slightest. You're not putting up with evil. You're not accepting false teaching. You have these people who apparently are coming in and claiming to be apostles. But here he says, they're not my apostles. And rightly, the church there has said, we know these people are false. We will not accept what they are teaching. And so we read about them and think, wow, look how good they are doing. In fact, they're patiently enduring. That is what we spent our time last Sunday in the book of James talking about. Remember, the need for patient endurance in the face of suffering and difficulties. We talked about how to do that. Here are the Ephesian Christians, and that's exactly what they're doing. They are holding up under the weight of suffering. And I would imagine if we were to make an analysis of the Christians in Ephesus, I think we would want to give them an A+. Look at how good they're doing. They're not tolerating evil. They're not allowing false teachers to come in. They're rejecting those who are claiming to be apostles and are not. They're not falling into the worldly ways. In fact, they're patiently enduring. They're even suffering for the cause of Christ and they're staying strong with God. What what more could you ask from a local church? Aren't they great? They're doing wonderful. And then you get the words in verse 4 that I think should be extremely chilling if we were to get a letter from Christ. But I have this against you. I bet after the first few sentences they were feeling pretty good. Oh yeah, I know your works. I know you're doing it. You're doing great. But I have this against you. And the thing that he has against them is no small thing. In fact, boy, you have abandoned the love you had at the first. And what is challenging about that is you have to try to reconcile. Now what does that look like? They're doing everything 
themselves like they ought to be doing. They stand against evil. They're standing for the truth. They have the right doctrine. They're patiently enduring. But you've less left the love. And so what this begins to picture for us is that they had turned a love and deep relationship with God into merely a to-do list or a checklist. They were doing all the right things, but Jesus comes along and says, but where's the heart? Where's the love? Where's the desire? Don't turn your relationship with God into a list of do's and do nots. Well, I didn't do this, and I did do this, and so since I've done my yeses and my noes and my thou shalts and my thou shalt nots, I must be okay with God. We sometimes think that way. This is what the Ephesians are doing, and Christ comes along and says, Oh no, you've severely missed the mark. Yes, you're doing everything. I know your works. I know your tribulation. I know that you're doing things that stand for truth. I know that you're fighting evil. I know that you're rejecting false teaching. But where is your love? Where's the love for me? In fact, that was a common problem throughout the Scriptures is that you will read about people who will come to Jesus and they will ask questions like, what do I need to do? What good thing do I need to do to be in the kingdom of God? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? You will read from time to time this question of Jesus. What's the thing I need to do? On one of those occasions, this is what Jesus said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all your soul. And with all your mind. Perhaps we pass too quickly over that statement. And we go, yeah, yeah, love God. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. What good thing do I have to do? You're missing it. Love Him. That's what you need to do. And then He would add just a moment later, and love your neighbor as yourself. Again, tying it to the need to love Love God. Love one another. And then to say something quite challenging. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. If you're not loving God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and you're not loving others, you're not doing the commands of God. And that's why you'll read about them walking away going, whoa, (laughs) that's not what I expected. I thought he would say, go to church more often, you know, make sure you're there on Sunday, you'll be all right, or something like that. That's that's the kind of list that we want. Oh, I need to be at church more, okay, I need to pray more, I need to help my neighbor more, I need to teach more. And we want to continue to roll out a checklist, and we're failing to recognize that God is demanding for us to have a love relationship with Him. Because it is extremely boring and mundane to turn God into simply a bunch of things to do. It's Sunday. Got to go to church. It's not that I love God. It's Sunday. It's what I have to do. 
prayer. It's not that I want to talk to God and love Him. I just know I have to do that. Stuff's bad in my life. Maybe God can bail me out. Lord's Supper, well, you know, it's just kind of what they do around here. It's not that I really care about the sacrifice or love that Jesus died for me. We just need to throw that in there every once in a while, make sure we're all okay. Can you imagine if your spouse or a person you were dating, but particularly think of it in a marriage relationship, imagine if your spouse said this to you, I don't love you anymore. But I'm going to keep doing all the things that I should do in this marriage. I'll still be a father. I'll still act like a husband. I'll still bring home the money and and do the things that that's required of me to do to fulfill my obligation, but I don't love you anymore. You going to be okay with that? You're going to be devastated by that. I don't care that you do X, Y, and Z if you don't love me. The reason you're supposed to do X, Y, and Z is because you love me. And so often we come before God with the, I love the world and I want to do what I want to do, but I'll do X, Y, and Z as if that's going to help. We wouldn't accept it in our marriage, and yet we think we're okay with God, as if He's like the volcano God that can be appeased because we've checked into the building for the week and now we're good. And He'll leave me alone. You see what he's writing to the Ephesian Christians? Where's the love? What happened? What's going on? Sure you're standing for truth. Sure you're fighting falseness. Sure you're against wickedness. But where is your love? Love is supposed to be the basis of all the things that we do before God. The things that we are commanded of us, the things that we are told to do, Love is to be the reason. Love is to be the basis of what we are doing. I would term it like this, that our actions are supposed to be an overflow of the love that we have. Did you catch that in the words that we sang right before the Lord's Supper when I surveyed the wondrous cross? Demands my soul, my life, my all. A grasping that, look at what God has done, and that motivates my love. It's not, well, when I surveyed the wondrous cross, that means, boy, I've got to go to church and I have to pray, and that means I'm going to have to give, and it demands a lot of things out of me. It demands our love. It calls for sacrifice that I want to give because of what He's done for me. That's what those words are saying. And that's what He is writing to these Christians and saying, what happened? Where did the love go? When did we turn the relationship and love for God into a bunch of rituals and into a big to-do list? You know, you're not going to enjoy your marriage if it's a big to-do list, if that's the way you perceive it. It's just what I have to do, you know. I'm the, I'm the husband, so got to go to work and got to take out the trash and uh, got to raise the kids. Or the wife's, yeah, 
Got to make the meals. Got to do it. Seriously. When would we turn our relationships into that? When we read about Joseph, and you remember Joseph is a young man who is a slave in Egypt there, and he's working for Potiphar. And one day, Potiphar is away, his master, and apparently Potiphar's wife was pretty interested in Joseph and sets up a scenario to try to get Joseph to commit sexual immorality with her. And so while Potiphar is away, she grabs him by the clothes and says, Come on, the bedroom's free, let's go. And does, what's Joseph's reaction to that? Joseph say, you know, that's just not on the to-do list. That's not... Uh, how can I do this against my master and against my Lord? Is what his response is. There's a relationship there with God that he says, how can I possibly do this? This is what keeps him from sin is because his love for God is so strong that he can't even imagine breaking his laws. It's not a, boy, that's something I really want to do. Maybe there's some way I can work that out. Is there a loophole somewhere that I can use to kind of be able to make that work out that I could do that and still be okay? Uh-uh. His love for God dictated everything. And that's what he's now going to call for them to do here in Revelation. Look in verse 5. And he's going to tell them three big things that they need to do to rekindle that fire, to get that zeal ignited one more time to be able to serve the God that they are supposed to serve Him in a proper way. This is how you're supposed to do it. Notice number one that He gives them in verse 5. He says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. That's an interesting beginning point. He says, I just want you to think about how far you've fallen in your love. Just think about where you were in your love for God and consider for a moment why you think your relationship with God has deteriorated to this point from where it was before. What's happened? Remember how you were on fire for God? Remember how you used to love Him? Remember when you had joy in the Scriptures? Remember when you enjoyed gathering with the saints? Remember how it was your love to serve God? What happened? And he just asked them to remember. Think about it. And I must ask ourselves and think within your own mind, what happened? What is it that is going on in our lives that is causing it to be difficult for us to serve God with the love that we're supposed to have? What is it that is interfering? What is the exact problem that's brought this to this point where we have turned God into a checklist rather than a relationship? And I'll submit to you a couple of ideas that I have, and I think one of the the first ones is that we've just simply lost our awe of God. We just aren't impressed by God anymore. We just kind of get used to all this. It becomes routine. It becomes just what you do and we get to know God and we go, yeah, yep, there's God. When is the last time that you have really been awed and moved by His grace? To really stop and think about 
you know what? I am a, a miserable, awful, wretched sinner. And I am sure thankful that God still loves me. I am sure thankful that God did not french fry me right there on the spot for what I've done wrong. Henry's exactly right. How, how in the world did Christ ever say, Father, forgive them that they don't, because they don't know what they're doing? Wow. That's some grace. That's some serious mercy on display right there. Do we even care anymore? I submit to you that one of the problems is that we have lost our awe and respect and we're no longer moved by the concept of grace. We look at ourselves as fairly good people. We've kind of cleaned ourselves up. We're not as bad as other people that we know. We're not as bad as the world. And so therefore, I don't need that much grace. I only maybe need a little bit of the blood of Christ. You know, I'm not that bad. And we fail to let the words of like Romans chapter 5 drive into our hearts that describes us as enemies, that describes us as sinners, describes us as undeserving. We've just let the grace of God completely fly over our heads so that the words that we sing don't touch our hearts anymore. The words of the Scriptures don't penetrate into our minds. We're just kind of there. We've lost our awe of God. When's the last time we have been awed by the creation? When's the last time that we stopped long enough to look around and say, look at what God has done. I think the second reason why we have lost our love and zeal for God is because we are so plugged into technology, we can't see anything that's really cool about God anymore. All we do is live life like this. Completely plugged in. Somebody was telling me the other day, now they're making, I guess, Facebook for your car? Boy, I really need to know what all of you are doing every moment. That, that needs to be the center of my life. Oh my goodness, are you serious? Boy, unplug for just a minute. <laughs> Don't, did any of you miss the days when you could get in your car and nobody can get a hold of you? I missed that day. <laughs> that would be great. Where are those days gone? You missed the day when you could slow down and just look around at everything that God's done. Look at everything that He's created. I was amazed the other day. Grace and I went out to lunch, and we were sitting in the booth. The booth right in front of us there, there were these two ladies who apparently were off on their work break. And I promise you, they did not say two words to each other, though they were friends. They both were in their phones, doing all of these things. And they had no discussion with each other whatsoever. And I thought, is that what we've come to? Is this how bad it's going to get? That we no longer can see that there's people around us. We can no longer see the creation around us. We can no longer appreciate all that God has done. We're just going to plug into the TV, plug into the computer, and plug into the phone 24-7. We've lost our awe of God. We've lost awe of creation and all the spectacular things that God has created for us. And I think that's one reason we've lost our love as well. 
You may in your own mind and heart be able to think of some other reasons why the love is deteriorated. That's what he's calling for the Ephesians to do. Think about it. Remember where you were. What has gotten in the way? What has interfered? Who's the problem? What's the problem? What's going on? Why have you sunk to this level that God has now been treated as a checklist of things to do rather than a love for God? That I want to do these things for Him. Where to go? I submit to you just a couple of things that are just societal that we probably have going on. And there may be some personal things in your life that might also be interfering. But consider where, what has happened. Because I think what has typically happened is because of our routines and we have become so busy, we have just simply lost sight of God's majesty. We're just so busy. Everything is point A to point B, and between point A and point B is a blur. We've got to get up, get going, go, 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 and go. And when I stop, I'm going to plug in and see what everybody else is going about, and then I'm going to come home and go and go and go some more. And we don't make time for God. And we don't think about God. We don't pray to God. We don't talk to God. We don't read about God. We don't care about God. Because we're so busy with our things. Sure, you have truth. Sure, you're standing against evil. I know you're not sinning, is what Jesus says. I know you're not committing error. I know you're doing the things that are right. I know you stand against falsehood. I know your works. I know you're doing well. Where's the love? Where's the love? Number two, he says, what needs to be done? He says, I want you to repent. And notice how these two work together. I thought Jeremiah was so interesting in what he brought up in this awe and respect for God to remember and repent. Jeremiah 5, verse 22. Have you no respect for me? This is God speaking. Have you no respect for me? Why don't you tremble in my presence? I, the Lord, define the ocean's sandy shoreline as an everlasting boundary that the waters cannot cross. You ever been amazed by that? The waves may toss and roar, but they can never pass the boundaries I set. You know, I never wake up in the morning and wondering if my house in Royal Palm Beach will be beachfront property. I don't wake up and wonder, oh, what, maybe today the ocean will just come on in ten miles. No, no. But my people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. They have turned away and abandoned me. They do not say from the heart, let us live in awe of the Lord our God. For He gives us rain each spring and fall, assuring us a harvest when the time is right. I suppose if we wanted to put verse 24 into modern America, it would be let's live in awe of the Lord our God. Because He takes care of everything in this creation so that we can have all our toys. He blesses us with so many things. And yet we don't praise God for all that we have. We just praise the things that we have. And so it's a call to repent. It's time to turn around. Notice it there in verse 5. He says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent. Nothing is going to change until we're convicted in the heart. This and the other eight lessons that I have planned for this series will not have any tangible benefit or any effect if we are not cut 
to the heart at the idea that we have strayed away from a love relationship and turned him into ritual. None of this is going to matter. That's what he calls for repentance. Are you cut to the heart? Are you sorrowful about the situation? When you think about where you are with God, does that even bother you? Do you care? Or is this the kind of relationship that you want? Is this the kind of God you want to serve? I just want to come, I want to punch in an hour, and I want everybody to leave me alone, and I want to pretend in my heart that everything's okay. Because I want you to observe that it's not okay with God. For us, we probably think, hey, this is great, this is good, God's happy with me, I'm here once a week, what else does God want me to do? I'm not as bad as everybody else. Yeah, There's some really bad people out there and they deserve judgment, but I'm doing pretty good. And so God's going to be happy with me. But He is very clear here. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. God's not okay. We think this is okay. We think it's alright for the relationship to go like this. God says, if you don't repent, one, I'm coming to you. Let me tell you, that's not a good one. That's not good coming. That's not Christ saying, I'm going to come and we're going to have fellowship together and it's going to be... No. When He comes, He means judgment. He says, if you don't repent, there's going to be a problem. I'm not okay with our relationship being like this. I'm going to come in judgment. And then notice he says, and I'm going to remove your lampstand. You know what he just said? You're out of fellowship with God. If this is what your relationship with God looks like, you don't have a relationship with Him at all. You are separated from God. You do not have fellowship. You do not have a relationship. Friend, you are lost. And though you may stand against evil... And you may think you're doing what is right and moral and you may be here every Sunday. If you do not love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind, God's not okay with the relationship. And He's saying, we're severed. And that's why He's calling repent. Turn back to Me. Come back. It's not too late. Don't be in love with your toys. Be in love with God. Don't be in love with the things of this world. Be in love with the Creator who made it all. Don't be in love with your stuff. Be in love with the God who saves. See the Lord. See what He's done. See what He's created. When the service is over, walk outside and just look around and be in awe. Look at how blue that sky is. Look at the beauty of this creation. Don't just go plug into some piece of device that's going to break something. See God. Repent. Be cut to the heart. Be upset at what we are forfeiting in our relationship. Number three, he says to return. Remember, verse five, remember therefore where you've fallen. Number two in verse five, repent. Number three in verse five, and do the works you did at first. It's time to return to what you did in the beginning. And so I'll just ask you the question that he states there implicitly. Well, What were you doing in the beginning? Return to those works that you did in the first. What did you do in the beginning? Think about your Christian walk with God when you were on fire for Him. When you did love Him, what were you doing? I submit to you there were probably many more things that you were doing then than you're doing now. Perhaps then you were gathering with the Christians more. 
Perhaps you were getting together and enjoying the company of the saints. And I don't just mean on Sunday. Anytime Christians are gathering, not just simply for Bible classes, potlucks, get-togethers, and I'm not talking about where it's all 100 of us, just enjoying each other's company, Christians with Christians, gathering together. Return to that. Think about the joy that that had as we built one another up and we encouraged one another in spending time together. Perhaps we were praying more back then. We had a more active relationship with God where we talked to Him. And we didn't just treat God as our escape parachute that every time something goes wrong, oh, I better pray. But in good times, talked to God and thanked Him for all the good things that we have. That we talked to God and were appreciative and grateful for the things that we have. And grateful for what He's done. Always speaking to God. Did we pray more back then? Perhaps we read the Scriptures more. What are the things that we were doing before? Probably we appreciated Jesus more. The thing that cut us to the heart, that caused us to confess Jesus as the Son of God who would be our Lord, that moved us into the waters of baptism to be forgiven of our sins, we appreciated Jesus more. I raise my hand. It's, we take Him for granted. We take what we have with Christ for granted. We appreciate the forgiveness of sins and then we just kind of sometimes can go into coasting. We don't think about what He's done and we fail to appreciate where we stand before God. Maybe we had a stronger fear of condemnation back then. That was one of my motivating points that got me into serving Christ was the realization of the judgment that happens to those who disobey. Have we lost that? Are we no longer motivated by the end result of the judgment that is to come? I think what we have then, as I would wrap this up, is to consider that we have a common problem. What we have is a common problem, and I'll call it spiritual amnesia. We just simply forget all that God has done. We forget how He's the Creator. We forget how He's provided everything we need. We forget that He's the one that gives us true satisfaction and all of our toys never give us the satisfaction that we think. All of the homes and all the cars and all the things that we collect never give us the true lasting satisfaction. Yep, when we roll it out the door for those first five minutes, we get some great satisfaction, but give it a week, give it a month, then I really want something new. True, lasting satisfaction comes from God. We forget what it's like to be free from vices and sin. Being enslaved to the things that we don't want to do that our flesh gets so ensnared into that we can't fight against it seems because our body craves for these things that we know we shouldn't be doing. I submit to you that we forget where we're going. We simply forget where we're going. We forget that there is a day of judgment. We forget that those who love the Lord their God will have a home with Him and have everlasting life. In fact, that's the picture that He gives in verse 7. Do you see it there? He who has an ear, let him hear. You know how you say that today? Pay attention to this. Really listen to this. What the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers... I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
The tree of life is something that we see back there in the book of Genesis in chapter 2 that Adam and Eve have access to. It's a picture of this fellowship with God. True life. But because of sin, they're separated from the garden and separated from that fellowship. And here is the picture. That's going to return. And I would ask you, do you want to be in paradise? Henry read for us that very statement of the criminal on the cross saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Christ turned to him and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Is that what you want? Is that what really matters to you? We need to pay attention to what He says. And if we do, He says He will grant us that fellowship. When you think of paradise, don't think of paradise as just merely a location. Uh, We often have this weird idea of of paradise in heaven. In fact, tonight's lesson we're going to do Revelation 4, which gives us a, a great picture of heaven. Because I think it's like the cartoons. You have this picture of it's a bunch of people floating on clouds wearing wings and playing harps and I don't know who came up with that but that's really messed up that's just not even in the Bible at all Uh, but there you go don't think of paradise like that the idea is to be in close intimate relationship with God that's what's being pictured of paradise is everything that is against God and separated from God is awful it will be paradise to be with the Lord. It will be wonderful. It will be perfect. There's no better place to be than to be in a relationship with Him. That's what is true life. That's what it's all about. That's why it's your decision. It's your decision if you want to rekindle the love that you had at the first. It's your decision if you want to have a relationship with God. This isn't God you know, deciding, oh, I'm going to throw a bunch of those people into hell because I don't like them very much. No. This is you deciding, do you want to have a relationship with God or not? Just as much as any relationship. you want to love the Lord your God with all of your heart? If you do, then He's made a promise. You'll eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. You will have true life. You will be with the Lord forever. You will be given all of the spiritual blessings that God can pour out. If you want God, if you love Him, it's all there. But it's your choice. You don't have to love God. And you don't even have to pretend to love God. You can decide, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to plunge myself into the pleasures of this world. I'm going to live life how I want to do it. You have every right to do that. But understand... There will be a penalty for that. Understand there is a day of judgment. Understand there is a time that all of us will be called into account for every deed that we've committed to the body. And that's not good for anybody. But if you love the Lord your God, He says, I'll give you grace. If you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, He says, I'll forgive your sins. I know you've made mistakes. I know you've done what's wrong. But I'll take away those sins. I'll cover them with my blood so that you can be in paradise. That's our invitation to you to come to Jesus. To come and love Him. Return to the love that you had at the first. See Him as the one who loves you with all of His heart 
who has done everything that he can to make a relationship with him possible. He is not some faraway God who does not care. He came to this earth and died for your sins and for mine. He showed you his love. And he's saying, will you love me back? Will you have the love that I ask of you? Don't make God a ritual. Don't make God a checklist. If that's your view of God, that's not what the Scriptures teach. God never gave you a list that said, do these five things and you'll be alright. Do these seven things, it's okay. God said from the very beginning, love me. Love me with all of your heart. And based on that love, you will want to do the things that He says. Based on that love, you will come to Him in submission and service and say, what can I do? to be a servant of the Lord. What can I do to follow Him? You'll decide to turn away from your sins and live for the Lord, repenting of those things, confessing Him as the Lord, and you'll decide, I'll be immersed in water so I can have my sins washed away. The opportunity is available to you this morning to make that very decision. You can let me know or let somebody next to you know that you're ready to be immersed in water to have your sins washed away, ready to become a disciple of Jesus, to follow Him with all of your heart. Or you can come forward while we stand and sing this song.